The following is Dennis Cardis's talk, Wayfinding for the Mobile Web from the 2015 Information Architecture Summit. Trace my steps that I had entered, which was going down the grandiose staircase, facing a small audience of people all looking at me, some of which I'm sure were aware of what had happened. And so I shamefully took my seat and enjoyed the rest of their performance. So that's my story about a problem in wayfinding. I tell the story for a couple reasons. One is there are some wayfinding elements to it, but also this is the kind of real world situations we design for even if we're doing stuff in the digital space because we're designing for people like myself who are extremely fallible. So it's very common for us to design in the real world, people are not necessarily attentive to all of the information that's around them. It's very obvious to overlook even the most blatant signs that might be in front of them. It's very common for people to mistake what icons represent or be forgetful of things. All in all, people are pretty fallible, and that's the kind of stuff that we design for. It's interesting because when we find ourselves in a wayfinding predicament, say you end up in the wrong spot or you're looking for information that you can't find, there's a fairly predictable sequence of events that your mind goes through. And so the first is to blame yourself. I'm so dumb, you know, why did I do this? And then after that, you may react emotionally. So you might be getting anxious or stressed out, a little bit frustrated, possibly humiliated. And then you may also turn that at some point and start to resent the system. So instead of feeling bad about yourself, you start to blame whoever created that space. So who would design a bathroom with only one exit in it? Who would design a search that doesn't work this way? And so you blame the system. You know, I hate this website, the search sucks on it. As humans, we try and avoid scenarios in which we're lost. If anyone's ever actually been lost, which hopefully not, it could be utterly terrifying. And I'm pretty sure that in the type of work we do, no one's ever embarked on a journey down the information highway and never returned. But at the same time, the way our minds are wired, even the prospect of being lost is enough to induce anxiety and stress into people. And so we try and find mechanisms of ways to not put ourselves in situations both intentionally and subconsciously to avoid situations where we're going to be lost or have trouble finding information. It's no wonder that the bounce rates are so high when people come to mobile sites and aren't able to find what they're looking for. It would be very difficult with small screen to navigate around. But what I want to talk about is like, why is that so difficult? Why is it exacerbated on mobile compared to on wider screen experiences? I think what it boils down to is that as we've been developing websites, and over years as what we kind of thought of as a baseline size for screens started to increase, the websites that we were building also began to become more complex. So we started introducing more information, more interaction, and essentially the wider our screens got, the more content needs the companies we're working for had. So sites necessarily became more complex. It introduces this conundrum, which is that when we think about the mobile experiences that resonate best with us, they're usually very simple interactions. They're very pared down. So we really crave these simple mobile interfaces. But at the same time, the sites and the projects that we work on are usually incredibly complex. So I'm going to show this example not as like the most complex site ever. It's actually one that I think is fairly straightforward in terms of the types of sites that we're often dealing with, sites that have deep hierarchies of information organized on the site. Sites where on the home page you have a lot of different things that you're trying to accomplish. You have a lot of links, a lot of interactive needs, multiple menu systems, which is very important because through the main categories you can access sub-navigation so that you can see different places that you can go. Or more importantly, so you can open up other panels of links that reveal even more options for where people can choose to go. And so we look at this and how cumbersome some of our interfaces have become on widescreen experiences. And then the natural thing that happens is at some point someone says, hey, but can we make this all responsive? 
And then you say, yeah, yeah, you could make anything responsive, I guess. Let's just put it all in there. And yeah, the truth is you could do it. You could fit anything. You could make anything responsive. There are enough mobile interface and responsive patterns, ways of hiding and revealing information. There's all different types of things that you can do to make everything fit in a small screen. The question is, is fitting all that stuff in these places the right way to approach it? Are there other things that we can be doing when we have these complex information-rich sites to make everything easier to navigate? Boyd Morrison is an environmental designer. This quote's from 20 or 30 years ago. and He's approaching this from a little bit of a different perspective than how we would see this. But when I read this quote, it really resonated with me because this is what I was kind of perceiving and seeing as a difficulty with how we approach mobile interface design currently. And so at his perspective, what he's coming from is seeing a bunch of people move from graphic and print design into environmental design, where they're now designing signage for hospitals and outside environments and wayfinding. And what he says is that what he sees is that these designers, and this is a criticism of them, are approaching these challenges that are about absorbing information solely through the lens of visual composition. And so that's what I see too when we start adopting all of these patterns to just stuff content and links onto a page. So what I want to talk about today is a little bit about the different cognitive and perceptual tools that we use as humans to orient ourselves and find our way around, and how we can take lessons from how other people in industry, such as urban planning, architecture, and environmental design, solve similar challenges. So I'll go over a couple things. First, we'll kind of go through some very simple wayfinding basics, so we kind of have a shared language of how some of this stuff works and what's going on in our head. Then some concepts and action where I'll kind of dig into a few specific elements of wayfinding, and then I'll kind of, in the third part, try and cram in as much as I can about just different mobile interaction patterns and where I see the strengths and weaknesses of those and how they might apply to projects that you're working on. So start by basics, what is wayfinding? It is essentially for a human or an animal or anything that needs to move around and survive. It's the way that you orient yourself in your environment and it's the way that you basically get from a location to a destination. So thinking about somebody coming to a website, for example, they have some sort of intention. They could be there to just waste some time, spend some time. They might be there to look up some information or to accomplish a specific task. But as they enter that site, which could be on the web, they could be entering on the home page or somewhere deeper into the site, their first question is trying to figure out, okay, where am I within the context of this site? And then how do I get there? Because if this is not where I should be, if I make that decision right away that this site doesn't hold the information I'm looking for, am I going to be able to retrace my steps and get out of there? And then is my destination nearby? So just like when you walk into a new place and you're saying, okay, well, this is the way I thought I should go, is where I'm trying to get to nearby. And if so, or even if not, what's my next move going to be? How do I get out of there? What happens in our mind as this is all going on is the first thing is information processing, which is serving our environment and looking for different cues that give us signals of what's going on. When I was trapped in the bathroom, my environmental cues were the magazines and the lack of urinals and stuff. In websites, we have different things that we latch onto to help orient ourselves within the section of the site that we're in. And then decision-making, looking at those cues and trying to come up with some sort of plan. And unlike scenarios where you might think you'd survey all of the options and then choose the best one, it's more of a method of satisficing where the first thing that kind of attracts your attention is being a possible candidate for where you should go is usually where people will go when they're making their decision planning. And then the execution, which is more or less just taking that intention and turning it into an actionable behavior. The interesting thing is as we go through websites or, again, equally through physical spaces, we don't see the whole system of what's going on. We only have these small glimpses, each one from a new vantage point. 
And so if you think about how that translates to somebody experiencing your application or your website, they may be coming from different devices and each time only see a sequence of pages or parts of the flow. And so what happens is they begin to make up this idea of how everything is structured and how stuff comes together. The parts that they don't see are conjured up based on their memories of viewing the site in the past. Some of them may be from past experiences on similar sites. But ultimately what's happening is you're creating a cognitive map. And this cognitive map essentially kind of like a mental model of the site, but it's what reflects our understanding of the parameters of what's the system or the space that we're in, where we can go and how everything is set up. So some concepts and actions I want to talk about. First is circulation systems, and we'll talk about landmarks, edges, and signs. And there's a lot more to wayfinding than these, but these ones I think are very relevant and can directly correlate to the type of stuff that we work on. So circulation systems, when an urban planner is planning a city, they're trying to figure out what are the most efficient ways to get people around in the city. Sometimes they have the leeway to set things up however they want, other times they're working around elements of the natural environment, so designing a city around a river or around mountains, parts of the environment. What's interesting is that as a designer or as an information architect, urban planner, we have the privilege of this bird's eye view where we see the master plan of how this all comes together. But for the people who use these systems, Again, they're only seeing the individual cues that they pick up on, so whatever paths they can see are what they interact with. And so it's very important to make sure that when we are creating paths, that they're easy to find, identifiable, and discoverable. So we have to make sure that, especially when we're going to small screens, we have these paths. If you're looking at the example before where there's 190-odd clickable areas that will take you to other places, those are all paths on the site. As you go on a small screen, when you start tucking those things away and hiding them, they're no longer visible, so it's going to make it very difficult for people to plan their routes. If it's done well, by the way you expose your paths and the routes that people take, they can start to get a more cohesive idea of what the rest of the system is like. A perfect example is if you go to Chicago, Chicago is very much built on a grid structure where things run north and south and east and west, so you can become familiar with one section of the city and it's not a huge cognitive leap to visit another section of the city, even if you've never been there before, and be able to know which way is which and where to go from there. We can do the same thing with our information architecture. The most typical circulation system or information architecture type that we see a lot for organizing site maps is this hierarchical structure, which is the common tree structure. Most information-dense sites are organized this way, where you have parent sections that have children's sections within it. They do allow you to dive down and go deep into sections, but they also afford the ability to make lateral movements across. Part of what makes the lateral movement possible is the fact that you're dealing with larger screen sizes, so you have more space to have you know, a section navigation and then an associative contextual navigation area. So you have the space to have these multiple menu systems all going on. You can spread them out in a way that makes sense to people. So this is great on a big screen, but it can be a bit cumbersome to figure out how to deal with all of those menu systems when you're looking at mobile experiences. So what we see becoming optimal for mobile, and again, this is something that maybe is a little bit more familiar in mobile applications where you're not dealing with a whole website. Or if you see people do a separate mobile site where they're not bound by the constructs they already have in place for the main site. So one of the patterns is a nested doll pattern, which essentially you could see on mail apps and other things, but you kind of dive into a section. It's a very directional path going down and up, but you funnel the user towards information you know, they kind of traverse their steps backwards to get back up to the main screen. Another one is the hub and spoke pattern. This hub and spoke pattern is really dealing with a central acre screen from which you would hop out to other independent sections of the site. So it's almost like a portal where 
these sections that represent the spokes may be totally different experiences with totally different templates and layouts, and you don't necessarily move from one end of the spoke to the other. To go across the system, you go back to that hub page where everything's kind of in the middle and then jump out again, launch out to another section. There was a previous version of the LinkedIn app that did something similar to this. Bento box is another conventional mobile pattern. This is more of a dashboard style view of information where you're dealing with lots of different information that you're aggregating onto a page. So in this case, you're gonna do most of your interactions on this single screen or on different view states for that screen. So you might see overlays and you'll interact with some data and then that screen will close, but you never really lose the sight of being in that one spot of the dashboard. And then a final one is the filtered view. And this is common when you're dealing with music apps or apps where you have a single data set that you want to explore from multiple perspectives. So yeah, a good example of this one too could be like photo libraries, music, and so on. Now a lot of these things, they work really well for mobile because they're focused and because they afford kind of that focus of interaction there. But they're not going to be ideal when we're dealing with these information-rich sites. But one thing that we can do is combine them. So instead of having your whole site set up in this hierarchical tree structure, you can put things together and have different sections use different models. I think the only key here is that as you do that, you make it very clear when a user is moving from one section into another section where the whole structure is going to be different. We see this in the real world in cities. So for example, in New York, New York has sections of the city that are extremely grid-based in terms of how the streets are laid out. But then you move to another borough, maybe it's more historic and it's based around some of the environment. It's a totally different thing. And people still find their way around New York. It's just making sure those transitions are clear to people. One of the other concepts I want to talk about from wayfinding is landmarks and this idea of having some strong, memorable visual cue that acts as a frame of reference. So again, to talk about Chicago. In Chicago, you can come out of the subway or off the L, and if you're not sure which direction you're facing, you can determine your relative position by seeing where the Sears Tower is, or Willis Tower, or soon to be renamed Tower. But it's this thing that, from anywhere in the city almost, it's a recognizable cue that you can figure out your position and orient yourself. Another thing that landmarks do can be to give your space an identity, and when you have space and you give it identity, it becomes a place. And place is the type of thing that we retain in our minds as we're creating those mental models, so it can be very useful for finding your way around, for navigating, for describing your environment, to have this sense of space. I mentioned the global landmarks. We also have local landmarks. So if you're on the East Coast, maybe you've been to a Wawa before. But this is the kind of thing when you're doing your day-to-day -day activities, you're not going to see the Wawa from any point in the city, but as you're going down a path and going to do something, the way you might give directions to somebody would say, oh, just go down the street until you hit the Wawa and then make a left. So you're using these different cues, and we would do the same thing in our websites when we look at what are local landmarks and what are global landmarks. So take a website, a global landmark is something that would be accessible from anywhere in the site to help give you a, a sense of reference. So that could be the logo, especially if the logo clicks back to the homepage. It's something familiar to people and they know that at any point if they're not sure where they are, that can transport them back to somewhere where they do know where they are. A menu icon, again consistently placed, breadcrumbs, footer links, all of these things are tools that they'll use to get around and if they're positioned in a familiar way, it's gonna be very helpful to understand the system. The local stuff, on the other hand, these are elements of the site that if they're going through a specific flow or sequence of pages, they may come across certain things. So a section banner will reinforce where they are. Maybe when they visited the site before, they remember that they were on a, some sort of slideshow gallery image thing, and then from there they found the content they wanted. So the next time they visit the site, they may not use the other navigational tools to get there. They may remember that the last time, here's how they found it, and try and duplicate that by retracing their steps again. You know, other examples of things that could be Local landmarks are there too, but it could be anything. These are just some samples of what they are. The most important thing, I think, when dealing with responsive sites, or even if you have a separate mobile experience, 
is understanding the pattern of how people don't necessarily sit down and do the entire interaction in that one sitting. So it's more common for people to weave in and out of different devices over time as they're trying to complete this broader task. So somebody, they begin their search on a mobile phone and then pick up a tablet later to continue that search. If they're researching buying a product, maybe later at a laptop or desktop, they're continuing that. And so by nature, the whole premise of how responsive design works is that you hit these breakpoints and things change, things adapt. And so part of my argument is that the best thing that we can do in scenarios like this is understand that people are coming from these different devices and build in a sense of continuity between these. So I love this example from United Pixel Workers where you can see, regardless what size the screen is, the logo is always in the top left and it's red. So you have color cues. The shopping cart is always blue and in the top right. The navigation changes from showing you all of the links to condensing down to just an icon that says navigation next to it. But it's always based on black, it's always in the same position on the page. A lot of the mobile and responsive patterns we see are based on this concept of a pend around, saying when you get to a certain screen size, take this out and then stuff it at the bottom, remove things around. That's just something to be considerate of as you're designing stuff, how much adaptation are you making? Because when you adapt things differently, you're asking that user who's been forming a cognitive map to modify or rewrite it, or potentially, if it's drastically different experience, to abandon the old one altogether which is going to create a very disjointed and not a seamless experience across devices. A quick story where we had a situation like this, we were redesigning an intranet for a hospital and we were told we can do anything we want with the layout, everything was fine, just don't touch the quick links. The quick links is a 36 item long list in the left rail of every page on the site that has the most common pages that some of the people with a little bit more clout or department heads would try and get to all of the time. And they would, as an experiment, take one link out and it would be like 30 seconds and the phone would ring and someone's like, I can't find the page that I'm looking for. It was this taboo thing that you couldn't touch it because people were very familiar with not only the fact that their item existed in the quick links, but the position of where it was on the screen as well. And it wasn't only that, it was that when we did some usability testing and watched people, they would go down eight nine clicks deep into the page, but they would be like click, 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 and for them this was easy. This was easier than using the search, which never works, and the navigation, which you can't find anything. So they had to memorize these patterns, and these patterns became landmarks because they knew where to click. If you moved the position of that, they'd be screwed. They wouldn't know what to do, and that's where you'd get upset users of the system. Another concept to talk about is edges and regions. So this is the idea that edges are the things that exist in our natural environment to divide spaces. Sometimes they're shorelines. They could be mountains. They could be something constructed, like a fence. They create boundaries around a space and they let you know what the parameters are. When we look at widescreen design, we have the advantage of using white space to create columns and to separate content from each other. We could put stuff in a left rail or a right rail. We have a lot of ways to organize information that creates those boundaries. When we start translating that to what happens on a smaller screen, we have to be more explicit with where those boundaries are. As you can see on the example on the left over here, on that one, looking down, there's no clear delineation between what would otherwise be a main content and a related content. So then people would assume that the stuff at the bottom is related directly to what's happening above and not understand that it's something contextual or something separate. And the example on the right you see just by using a shade of background color, you create a visual separation that creates that edge and then sets the expectation for the user that they're looking at a different section of content. Similarly, to deal with our edges of buttons, with flat design we see a lot of minimal UI where people get rid of 
sometimes the outline, or you have ghost buttons where it's just the outline but no fill. There's a lot of things that people do where you have buttons in close proximity that's just the icon. It's super important on small screens to make sure that the edges of your buttons in actionable areas are clearly defined. And the example on the right, you see there's, you know, the headers separated from the content very clearly. You have these other photos that create visual separation and edges between them, labels and stuff. But again, this idea of making sure that your visual separation is clear on small screens. Just with an example of links, you know, is this identifiable as a link? This would apply to any type of website, but especially on mobile, you know, you want to make sure that people know that this is actionable, that it's not going to be confused with, is this red underlying text a link? You know, the underline is often used to represent that it's a hyperlink. I also see a lot of crazy content authors who just want to underline text in red, so you have to be careful about making sure the appropriate cues are there. The other thing is to be thinking about size, right? So tap targets and finger size to make sure that when people are trying to interact, that what's helping them navigate is that it makes sense for their hands to use. There's a lot of different research that will say the exact best size to make as a minimum, minimum size for buttons and stuff, but it usually is around eight or nine millimeters square for an icon if you want it to be actionable, and then as wide as the content is in the case of buttons. But equally important to making sure that the button is easy to tap and the right size, making sure that there is a buffer of inactive space that separates your actionable area from another actionable area to avoid mistaps and things that might inadvertently bring people down the wrong path. So finally, I want to talk about signs in wayfinding. In the background there, you can kind of see this airport dream experience where you come, off of, you come out of the gate and there's nothing else around to distract you. There's just a sign that points to you know, which way to go for baggage claim and other stuff. So that's nice, right? It's very cleanly designed. There's not a lot of things interfering with your focus and understanding where to go. Next, we have this crazy intersection here. So maybe going a little bit overboard with signs. And this is something that is funny to see in the context of a picture like this because everyone would say how ridiculous this is. But what happens is signs are the easiest and often this just lazy thing that we do. If somebody complains that they can't find their way around a site, odds are that a manager, whoever's making decisions involved, especially if it's not like a UX designer, interaction designer, would be like, just put a button up there. This intersection reminds me of almost every university site that I've ever designed, where they have all this stuff cluttered <laughs> onto a page, and then the alumni center comes and says, well, nobody's donating, so we need to put a button right at the top that says donate. And then admissions is like, well, what about apply now? We need that up top, too. And so you're stuffing all these buttons and all these links to these pages with no real understanding of how people are processing information. So it comes down to this idea that information at the wrong place is as good as no information at all. The way that we perceive environment is really this shifting between scanning and glancing. So if there's a lot of information on the page, you're not going to look at all of it. You're going to glance, and each glance you might process something for less than a tenth of a second. And in that time, you're going to quickly make a snap decision about whether or not it's relevant and specific to what you have in your mind at the time. And if it's not, you're not going to save it for later to remember. It's not even in your vision. You don't notice it at all. You totally disregard it if it doesn't make any sort of relevance to it. Thinking about how people are scanning and glancing interfaces and making sure that things you know, have the appropriate visual cues, especially when we're dealing with mobile phones where there's a wider variety of environments where we'll be using them in. So knowing that we're, people use mobile devices outside is more susceptible to glare or the fact that instead of having a screen that you're going to be staring at and looking at straight on, you're looking at it at an angle, too, so you have some reflection and other things going on. You know, everyone knows the different accessibility requirements, Section 508 and so on. The accessibility requirements for mobile are actually more strict than they are on desktop in terms of recommendations. So if you have your minimum recommended contrast level of colors on a desktop, you'd want to make sure that's even more so 
on small screen devices to accommodate the fact that they're in these outside environments. And text should be a little bit larger than maybe your minimum size text on the desktop screen too. But all this helps make sure that the system is legible. And that's one of the things that's very critical to understanding and navigating any space. So icons versus text, you know, icons and text are both big parts of creating signage. So I want to talk about that really quickly. The question is, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, should we use an icon for this? Would an icon be better? An icon is very tempting to use for mobile design because of the fact that it's very concise, it's small, it can fit onto a screen really easily. Kind of as I alluded to at the beginning of this presentation, the ongoing problem with icons is that they're not always as straightforward as we think they are. So even simple icons like this, the pencil obviously means to edit, unless it means to write, or the plus could mean to add an item, or it could mean to expand. Is minus going to remove something from your interface or collapse something? All of these things may have dual meanings. And even if you're consistent about how you use it, there's nothing to say that an other designer somewhere else or a different platform will use a similar icon to mean a different thing. So these things that are straightforward as a design team may not be straightforward to users at all. In old article from the UIE site, Jared Spool has this quote that I think is brilliant, like I love this, but he basically is saying that the speed at which the average user can deduce the icon's function is directly proportional to the speed at which the design team can agree on what the ideal image should be. <laughs> Here's a good example I want to show. So in both these cases on the left and right on a mobile screen, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're pointing people to these different paths and you're using a combination of image and text for it. On the one on the left, the images take the more prominence than the text does. The problem is that the images require more cognitive effort to decipher. They're not straightforward. You don't know what they mean. And the text is smaller, and because the text is positioned in a grid, it's harder to scan. With the example on the right, everything is in a vertical list and it's aligned. You can scan the text easy with almost no cognitive effort, assuming that you have the ability to read, which in some cases people might not. But the icons exist as a supplementary cue to that, maybe making return visits a little bit faster to do that. So in this case, it would seem like the example on the right would be more ideal than the example on the left. But as a little twist, one thing to consider as well is that the one on the left could be good if this is an application that's used by people on a repeat basis. So instead of having to decipher what each of these symbols means each time, instead they recognize the position in the space. And so for repeat uses, that one on the left may be really easy because you have a lot of options squeezed into that space and so people can remember it. I forget who had mentioned this, but as an example that exemplifies this point, if you were to take your smartphone and look at all the apps on it, when the app icons are updated, you're not confused, you still use them fine, it's not a problem. If you lend your smartphone to your friend and they rearrange the position of all the buttons on it and they give it back to you, all the app icons, it will drive you crazy. Trying to refine those same things, even if the icons are the same, would be totally different if they're in different positions. So text or image, it can go either way, but in most cases, I think it's kind of a safe bet to say that a combination of text and image will work best, followed by text only. Assuming that you're using good labeling, that should be straightforward and not ambiguous, and then images by themselves lastly, since there's a little bit more ambiguity there. A couple examples that I want to look at too are in laying out content for mobile screens, so what's better, to put things in a grid or to put things in a list? Well, in this case, if you're at the top level of a system, with the example on the right, you see more options at once. On the example on the left, you see fewer options. So if what you're trying to do is decide between top-level categories, assuming that those categories are somewhat exclusive, then the version on the right succeeds better because in one glance you see more of the options, where on the left you only see, there's a little line between there, you might only see four at a time, so then each time you swipe up, you're taxing your memory to hold on to what you had just seen and compare it against what you're seeing now to just get a sense of what all of the options are. Another example here 
On the left, you're looking at something that's identifying categories. So you see suits, and then you see shirts. They're kind of in this visual format where you get to see what it is. But you don't need to see the photo to tell what's the difference between suits and shirts. It's very clear. So when you see the navigation, the expanded menu in the middle one, well, that's a more ideal way to survey what your options are and what choices you have. Now, with the example on the right, you see the suit in detail. And so what happens is as you get to a more granular level, what becomes more important is not surveying your options, but seeing what differentiates your options. And so in those cases, if you're trying to decide between details or the visual difference is what's going to distinguish your preference for one item to another, then in those cases, you do want to use those images because it provides very important cues. Who likes hamburgers? <laughs> Anybody have any opinions on this? I love talking about hamburger menus because it creates lots of drama. The only thing more than drama and drama and more drama is double hamburger, which you see up here. That's pretty awesome, right? I like the arguments that happen with hamburger buttons, hamburger menus, or trigrams are sometimes called, because everyone says, well, do people really even know that it's a button that represents that there's a menu? You know what? Like, as we were looking at with other icons, like, people don't know what icons mean. People don't know what the hamburger menu means, but they learn it. They will remember what it is. To me, yes, you will face issues if you have something that is a symbol with some people being able to understand it, but the same as you would with using any icon anywhere in your interface. I like this example from the NBC Nightly News. They redesigned right after I had grabbed this slide, but if you can see in the top left, they have the hamburger button, and I would love to be in the design meeting where at some point someone was like, we don't think people understand the hamburger meeting. What are we going to do? Let's put a tiniest text you can and say menu below it. Right, so it's like, at some point, somebody's saying, people aren't finding this menu, or they don't know it's the menu, so let's add the text to it. Maybe that's why people aren't using the menu. Maybe it's because there's 146 other clickable things on the page, I don't know. It could be because the page is filled with faces, which is attracting your attention. Or it could be because of the fact that with 116 requests and almost a megabyte and a half of download time, if somebody's on a slow connection, this is the tablet size that we're looking at here, if someone's on a slow connection, it may take 29 or 30 seconds to load this page, which could be a very good reason why nobody's using the menu. So the point is there's a lot of things that you need to think about when what's making your mobile experiences easy to navigate. Everything that we're doing in all of these cases, we're trying to plan things in the system that make it easier for people to find their way around. And the reason why, as I mentioned, icons and these different patterns are so alluring is because they allow us to simplify and give this illusion that there's less things to deal with. And that's good because processing less is easier than processing all of that stuff at once. I'm kind of borrowing from John Maida's Laws of Simplicity. He has a recipe for creating simplicity, which is essentially to organize, reduce, and optimize. So organize is simple. He's got this acronym for it, slip, sort, label, integrate, prioritize. But there's a very basic example of this at work. You have a list of 11 things. A list of 11 things you will take one glance at because it's one object. And at one glance, you'll only be able to parse a few of those items within it, so the chances are that you'll miss the majority of items within that list on your first glance as you're surveying things on the page. So to sort that, you break it into groups of three or four. And just by breaking it into groups of three or four, you're now going to take three glances at it. In each glance, you'll probably digest the full amount of information in there. So you'll be much better to understand what your options are when you've sorted it. Labeling it is helpful, too. Because as we talked about how the brain will glance at things and then immediately decide its relevance, you may find that out of those 11 items, now sorted into three groups, that two of those groups are immediately recognized as being totally not relative at all and ignored, so now you're just looking at one group. So again, that can help with paring down what would be a list of many things into a list of a few, at least in terms of how your mind perceives it. And then to integrate, so by adding a little bit additional juiciness to what those titles are, this is something that would seem extremely redundant on a wide screen to be 
using that label over and over again to say campuses, but if you think about how much is visible in a viewport at a single time, there are cases where you might want to have more descriptive labels like that so that when people see that one snippet of information at one time, they're able to get a better sense of what it is. And then finally, prioritizing. So if you know that 80% you know, of your users are coming for these five links, but you need to show all 11 links, you know, visually prioritizing them in the interface is another way to help people find that information more quickly and go down those paths. So reduce is another way to create simplicity. And here's where we'll talk about navigation a little more specifically. So it kind of says there's three ways to simplify something. You can shrink it, you can hide it, or you can embody it. So shrink, let's say we have a related list of links on a page that you need to deal with. Maybe you're in a situation where you're going from responsive design and going a little bit smaller. So in this case, on the example of the left, you're carrying over some of these same design elements that you had on the big screen. So you can kind of see there's multiple shades of blue happening there, kind of a box inside of a box, text in there. It's hard to see on the screen, but there's little arrow icons beside each one. A lot of that stuff is visual noise that is being processed that you don't need it to. So when you think about that this block doesn't need to stand out, maybe in the wider screen, it's all colored and decorated because you want to draw attention to that part of the page. In a single stack column, your focus is already there. So as long as you indicate that this section is related or not related to the things before, you can drop a lot of those cues. Again, you would still want to keep continuity in mind. But seeing the second example, you drop some cues, the list becomes easier to parse. And in the final one, and not saying to go this minimal, but just for sake of example, when you strip away all of that stuff, the list becomes very easy to scan. So there's a few different menu patterns that I'll go through kind of quickly. The first are some of the hidden patterns. So this is an example of this, is this tap to reveal. So it could be any combination of menu icon or hamburger icon or a button that says navigator, a button that says menu. And as you tap that, your options appear on screen, which is great, again, for spatial conservation, fitting things onto a page, but good chance that it contains trigger words that are being hidden. The off canvas or push navigation does something similar, where you have an easy to access button that will then reveal information usually sliding in from the side. Same issue here, if what's sliding in from the side are these major categories and pathways that you want to expose to be visible to your users, then hiding them may not be the best idea. It's the idea of out of sight, out of mind. Now with that said, it's not to say that these patterns don't work. It becomes riskier when they are the primary or only means of exploring different categories and different content on your site. If the way your pages and templates are set up, within the content or different areas of the page, if you have those routes available and exposed in other ways, then you can become less reliant on making sure that those main navigation are always visible. Some of the ones that stay visible are like a multi-toggle menu where you have essentially like an accordion expandable panel style list of links. So in this case, it would always be visible, but you can tap it to reveal more information below. We've done a lot of these, but one of the things that's always you have to be very careful about, if you have something that's a button and a link that goes to a page, but you also have it paired with something that is meant to expand a panel below to show more links, you have to be very clear about making sure the delineation between the trigger to expand and the active link that's a hyperlink is very clearly shown. And even if you make it clear, that's not to guarantee that somebody's gonna pick up on those cues. They may just see it and press it and be surprised with whichever behavior happens. So something to consider if you're using toggle menus. There's also skip to the bottom, which is what I'm personally fond of because of the fact that it's always visible. You still have that button for easy access up at the top of your screen that would slide you down to the bottom where your other options are. This one's nice too because if you think about the gesture of swiping through a page and digesting information, when you get to the end of it, you're not at a dead end because now you have your major categories so that they can go and explore other sections of the site. 
So I think this is one that can work really well. Another thing that we see, and this is carried over a lot as a convention from both native applications and what we see in wider screen design, kind of in contemporary stuff, is the idea of the fixed header, or the sticky nav, the idea of keeping this navigation always front and center so that people have that reference. As a landmark, it's great. Do that. A couple considerations for this, if you're going to try one of these patterns, is that it's not entirely supported. I mean, they're pretty well supported now, but depending on how far back you're going to support in the different browsers, you have to be a little bit careful because especially with the bottom area, the sticky footer, that's a little bit less reliably supported. And the other thing with these two is it's obstructing content, so it's taking up space. When you have a bigger screen, a tablet or a bigger smartphone, the amount of information that it obstructs is not a big deal. But imagine it's you know, an older iPhone or something, or you turn it into landscape orientation. Maybe the real estate of the space of the screen that it's blocking and obstructing content, that could be a little bit more detrimental at that point. So again, with any of these menus, it's not to say that one is good and one is bad. It's just all things to be considering as you're exploring and trying out the different patterns for what's going to work for you. Embody was the other element of simplicity here. And it's this idea of being able to eliminate pieces of your interface because instead of a graphical user interface where you have an indirect way of manipulating the space, you're interacting with your hands, you're touching the content and moving the content and manipulating it directly. And so that allows you to get rid of a lot of stuff like the click here for more and things where you need to have descriptive text that gives you an instruction for how to interact with it. As we go from graphic user interface into the natural user interfaces, we just have to also be cognizant of the ergonomic factors of it. So if you do have a landmark or a trigger button, you know, are you positioning it in a place that's easily within reach or is a little bit more of a stretch? Just thinking about those things and thinking about stuff like the proximity of a control and the content that it controls. So are you making sure that those are always close together in your screen? Optimizing performance. I was joking about it with the NBC site a little bit, but if you have to go five miles and you're stuck in traffic, it can be painful. It can seem like a terrible journey to take. Um, you're going to try and avoid doing that. Similar with on the web is you navigate through places. If you're optimizing for speed and for performance, the impression is that things will be easier to find. And the slower things go, the impression is that they're going to be difficult to find. Even if the sitemap information architecture structure was entirely the same, that speed is enough to make people feel like navigating in this site's terrible. I can't find anything. So I was going to leave you with one message to kind of sum up all of the stuff that I tried to cover in this talk. It would be to remember that people are fallible. So just don't let visual composition trump information and provide people with clear cues of orientation so they can make sense of the system. And maybe by progressively revealing navigation and keeping your paths visible, or by creating continuity across screens and devices and clearly defining screen regions and tap targets and focusing on legibility and always simplicity if you're doing so sensibly. I'll leave you guys with that. So thank you so much for being here today. I hope you enjoyed the talk. If you enjoyed this podcast from the 2015 IA Summit, subscribe and check out the full collection at library.iasummit.org and on iTunes. The 2015 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by the UIE All You Can Learn Library. The All You Can Learn Library will give you the skills and techniques you need for a competitive design advantage with 24-7 access to experts and UX topics. For more information, visit aycl.uie.com. That's aycl.uie.com. As always, thanks for listening.